0: Det är den bästa Carlsson. Carlsson, Carlsson. Hoj här kommer Carlsson. Carlsson, Carlsson. Ingen faktiskt ingen annan Carlsson spelar så bra som mig. Carlsson, Carlsson, Carlsson scores. Carlsson. Mattie är Carlsson. Det är den bästa Carlsson. He's a guy we actually don't plan on talking about today, but that's okay because we've got a big show. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who at one point don't Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm excited. It's been a month since I've done this, Brian. Here we go. I'm your host, Elon Dabrowski. With me, Brian, come. What a relief to hear your voice back on the Keeping
1: Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. Way too much of mine, and yours is better anyway.
0: Thanks to Mark for the help with the intro here in the chat room. We are live, by the way, on Google Hangouts, keepingcarlson.com slash live. For those of you listening thinking, how can I get live next time? That's why you just go there. It always leads you to the right place. But yeah, Mark, great job with the yes name. Tweet at us, at keepingcarlson, if you have ideas for yes names. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, oh, what am I doing? We got so much to talk about. Okay, here's the plan for today. The last few episodes, we've been just kind of talking about what we've been seeing in the playoffs. Talking about some players that were interesting us. But now we're going to get into... Super Summer Series content. Like, this is the serious, nerdy stuff. We're going to start looking back on the season that has passed and see what we can learn from it. Today, the plan is to go over some players who disappointed who were drafted higher than what they ended up producing and brian took a deep dive into these players and is going to let us know if he thinks that they are going to continue to be bad or if it was an anomaly and all these guys are going to bounce back and they're going to be very nice value picks in your drafts i guess before we get into that brian let's mention that we are presented by the best fantasy hockey website out there dauberhockey.com who just released uh prospects guide so with the draft coming up now is the time to go and do your research check out what they think about all the prospects you've got rankings for a bunch of different dauber contributors lots of really good stuff there and if you are in a keeper league or even a one-year league and you want to get a late pick of a guy who no one else has heard of and that is going to totally steal the show for you like a hashtag team warrensky 2017 18 version check it out dauberhockey.com and check out that prospects guide
1: yeah, you and I have both purchased the guide, and we will definitely hope to bear the fruits of Dauber and Crew's labor as we try and uh, try and find the next big thing while they're still not so
0: big. Brian, why why did you purchase it? You should have told me. We could have shared it. We're just. Throw we first of all we're giving a discount to our patrons over the summer. It's only a dollar to be a patron, so we already got rid of all of that money. Now you, we're throwing money by got gu- two kinds of guides. I was just <laughs> I was just being
1: polite. I'm using your copy.
0: <laughs> That's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> Let's get started with the first player I want to talk about. This is the guy on my list of disappointing players. And by the way, those of you in the chat room, at the end of the show, we'll do a quick lightning round. And you could throw up some of your players you want to talk about. But I think I came up with a pretty good list. Here's the guy who I think was drafted the highest last year of all the guys I was going to talk about. This is a perennial first. Maybe lately he's been a high second round pick in our patron rankings that this is the second year we've done it. Thanks to patron Dave for setting all of that up last season going into the season this guy was ranked at 16 this year in our rankings he's all the way down at 41 I'm talking about Claude Giroux this was a guy who you could depend on for like a solid bet for a 70 point floor with upside for more he's been a point per game guy for so many seasons and this year huge disappointment he ended up with only 58 points 14 goals 44 assists in 82 games you can't blame it on injuries less than 60 points for a guy that you would have thought 70 points it's not like a total disaster of year we've got some players coming up that maybe were even worse makes the Giroux pick not even seem that bad it's not like he ended up dropping him to free agency but still this is a guy who had 67 points in 2015-16 he had 73 the year before 86 the year before 48 in 48 games the year before that 93 before that like he's consistently been like I said a 70 plus point guy with so much upside for more he's only 29 years old so it makes me wonder Brian I know that sometimes you like to talk about these aging curves I said only 29 years old, but maybe that's kind of old for hockey. Like, are we just seeing a progression that we would expect at this age? Like, if I say those numbers backwards, he's 86, 73, 67 and 58 points in the last four years. So he's been steadily declining. Do we expect him to keep on declining or to stay at around this 58 point, like 60 point pace? Or do you think he could get back up to that 70 point pace next year? The best we can hope for for Clodger is that he Benjamin buttons himself and just goes
1: back up that list that you went in the reverse direction. But of course, we're, we're going to go a little bit beyond hoping that that happens and dig into his numbers to see, well, where where did this drop happen? There were several, as you detailed, Elon, such a huge disappointment, several weeks long stretches last season where he was a half point per game guy which just isn't okay. if you drafted him in the early rounds last year or prioritized him as like a top can't touch keeper. Uh, He's been a perennial first or second round pick, and he's likely to fall beneath that after last year's terribly underwhelming campaign uh, that you detailed very well. I'm just going to add a few little tidbits here. He had the lowest points per 60 rate of his career. He actually had a half point per 60 lower than his previous low. And that came way back in his sophomore season, back in 2008, 2009. So what exactly happened? Well, I think there are a lot of contextual possibilities factoring in here. And that's going to be a theme for this whole show, Elon. You know, we like to look at a player's numbers and see, well, they're not doing this and they're not doing this. All that does is describe things in a vacuum without really understanding why exactly it's happening. So we're going to do our best to look at those numbers find the weird ones, and figure out what's happening around them.
0: Yeah, well, for sure. That's the plan. Like, your typical fantasy hockey opponent that you're going to face is going to be drafting based mostly on last year's numbers and maybe a little bit of an upgrade for players that have a big name like your Henrik Zetterbergs or your Claude Claude Giroux.
1: How did you go to Henrik Zetterberg
0: before Claude Giroux? I don't know. Henrik Zetterberg's really good. But we're on Claude Giroux. All right. So tell us about uh, all these contextual things that led to Claude Giroux having such a bad season.
1: Okay. Well, first we're going to we we're gonna blind ourselves from those and look straight at the numbers and then try and figure out possible explanations based on the context. So looking at his straight up numbers, his shots on goal and shot attempt for 60 minute rates both fell to career lows at even strength. And it wasn't a gentle drop for him uh, from last season either. Giroux was attempting three fewer shots per 60 minutes compared to his 2015-16 season. And that is kind of a big deal. Those are numbers that should be roughly under his control as well and not swinging one way or the other just based on variance. But there are a couple numbers more prone to variance that were also working against him. So first, and by the way, when I say variance, I guess what I'm trying to intimate here is luck or what most of us would call luck. But luck is just unexplained variance. If we don't want to believe... That, you know, uh, I mean, sure, you make your own luck, that could be part of it. But a lot of people classify, especially in stats today, luck as whatever they haven't figured out how to measure yet. So I'm using the word variance, which is just a little more appropriate and and gives it a little more credibility rather than just saying, well, uh, he's snake bitten. Uh, So anyway. Couple numbers prone to variance that we're working against. Claude Giroux, uh, first his even strength IPP was down at fifty three percent, which is fifteen to twenty percent lower than it's ever been before. It's normally been in and around the seventy percent range, which is right for an elite scorer. And this, I believe, is something variance related, and that he can recover from. Like it's just a one off. I'm not sure exactly why that happened, but I think it'll come back as IPP tends to do. It usually have a pretty steady, not necessarily static but a number that stays within a given range, or at least if it's going to decline, it's going to decline more slowly than what happened last year. Then you look at his individual and on, on ice shooting percentages at even strength. They were also down to career lows this past year. Normally, I'd say these are also variance-related stats, but I'm not so sure. His shot locations, as well as frequent linemate Jacob Voracek's shot locations, they've been getting curiously pushed further and further back over the last few seasons and this I chalk up more to a coaching and systems issue than a personal failure of Giroud or Voracek. Uh, My concern of course is that Dave Haxel is still at the helm at this point in the offseason. I called for a new Flyers coach. I don't know why they didn't listen and he still has the job. Uh, So anyway I worry that there might not be an effective fix on the horizon for whatever coaching or systems issues that are causing these elite superstars in Giroud or Voracek to just have to take shots further and further from the net.
0: All right, so can I just do a quick summary before before you continue here because you you've packed so much into those sentences. So first one okay. saying his IPP was down, which you're saying it's kind of like, well, that could happen. just happens to be that goals were scored while he was on the ice. And for whatever reason, he wasn't getting in on them. Maybe he was getting the first pass that led to the second pass that led to the guy who scored. And so he didn't get the point even though he was part of the play. Sometimes that happens. So, okay, I like that. And then you're saying for the shooting percentages, you're saying that he had a lower shooting percentage. And generally, we like to think that that's more luck related. But you're saying that because the shots were worse, like the shot quality was down, that could explain it. And that's something that might maybe continue if the system continues to be bad if they continue to be coached in this poor way as you think they happen. Also, side note, do you just not like Hackstall because yes, Steve Mason wasn't <laughs> playing enough and now you're just assuming that anything bad that happens with Philadelphia is, is related to coaching?
1: One in a long line of curious decisions made by Philadelphia's front office. But I, we talked about this, I think it was a few episodes ago, Tyler Dello, You can follow him on Twitter at Delo Hockey mentioned he showed shot charts and we had actually noticed this already how the shot locations are coming from further and further like they're being either boxed out from the net more effectively by other teams they're not able to get in there and again it's not just happening to one of them it's happening to more than one which makes me think it's a systems thing or they're being told to shoot there like that's where they're being told to set up and get shots from this isn't where you should have your elite players trending towards like you want them closer to the net you don't want them being pushed out further for obvious reasons or any player let alone elite
0: uh and the players right one of these players are just like older and like not as good and so they just are getting forced there it has nothing to do with coaching the coach is saying, yeah. no go to the good places is i mean that, that, possible? that is that is possible we have talked about
1: guys who have lost a step skating or physically and they can't sort of push their way into scoring areas as effectively as before but this really does seem to be a systemic thing like girou's 29 and we've talked about potential injury issues affecting him before. I don't think that's what this is. I'm not sure what's happening here. But to see the production of two elite players disappear as drastically as it did last season makes me think that it's not either one of them to blame. And I have another reason to be concerned about Dave Hackstall's choices behind the Flyers bench. And that's in... Claude Giroux's ice time after five consecutive seasons in which Giroux averaged 20 and a half minutes of ice time per game or more. Giroux skated for just 19 minutes on average this past season, and he actually played his biggest minutes towards the start of the year. If you isolate the start of the year and look at just the last half of the season, he was averaging just 18 and a half minutes of ice time. That's two or three minutes fewer per game than what he's used to seeing over the last five years. And... It's like bordering on second line minutes rather than no doubt or first line, which is what Claude Giroux is. And sometimes, again, we can explain that away to a nagging injury, but look at what Giroux did. He went straight to play and put up nice point totals over at the World Championships once the season ended after Game 82. And that puts a pretty solid hole in the theory that he was just injured and being rested for some reason. The silver lining in all of this, by the way, is that Giroux was able to hold perfectly steady on the power play, and his owners still enjoyed his usual contributions there with 26 power play assists and 31 total power play points. But to get all the way back, oh yeah, go ahead. What do you have to say?
0: Well, no, you're talking about the power play. I was going to point out he was actually elite on the power play. He was tied for third in the league in special teams points. I'm ranking here on Fantrax. So Backstrom, Hedman which are also like interesting numbers, right? And guys who are probably going to go higher than they went last year, but we're not on that episode. We're on the disappointing players, but consider it's pretty interesting that if you look down this list of top power play point getters, uh, Giroud's the only one that we're going to be talking about today as someone who disappointed us. So it's definitely surprising that someone who was so elite. And usually I find you say that if a player had a really good season, you might be skeptical if a lot of their points came on the power play, because that might be the kind of thing that's harder to repeat the next year. Maybe the team just did better on the power play. So it's very interesting that that was like the place where he was... Is still elite and he must have fallen so far at even strength considering he only ended with 58 points when he was third in the league in power play points
1: yeah well it's nice to see he can put up elite production somewhere and going back to the whole shot location thing you look at his power play shot locations and they are pretty similar over the last three years there are no large fluctuations not that the fluctuations are terribly huge at even strength but they're noticeable whereas power play he's still shooting from like just above the face-off dot on the left-hand side, as he always has. Anyway, to go back to your original question about whether four straight years of decline for Claude Giroux and his numbers, that means that he's getting old, and that's what we should expect going forward. I don't think that's the case here. Has he lost his point per game edge? That is entirely possible. But 86, 73, 67, 58, as you read it, that is not a normal aging curve for ages 26 through 29, far too sharp of a drop at the back end of it, where he goes from 73 points to 58 points uh, just in the matter of two years. Well, 67 to 58 points in one year is enough to be curious. So I think dropping as low as he did last season makes a bounce back for me, from my perspective, as the guy who's trying to call it, all that easier to call. He's not a sub-60-point player, so it's easy for me to say he's going to bounce back One thing that I think can really help Claude Giroux is a new coach and a new system. There are two ways he can get it. Dave Haxtell is replaced within the first month or two of the season, or Giroux is dealt away to another team, which I did suggest also a few episodes ago that the Flyers, maybe they should maximize these assets that they have if they don't think they're going to win while these guys are still contributing elite numbers. So all in all, I'd be more confident calling Giroux a 70-point player next year with some sort of coaching change without it. I'll stick to a cautious 65. But in any case, if he falls outside the first two rounds in your draft, you've likely got a shot at a player with 70 point upside later in your draft than you normally would. And that's something that you can take advantage of if you're up for taking. Well, it depends how you perceive the risk. I'm ready to jump on him if he's available in my third round and definitely fourth.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree. It seems like there's different types of strategies when you're drafting in a one-year league. And I keep saying a one-year league just because everything kind of goes out the window when you're in a keeper league. And, you know, a guy like Jake Gensel is a lot more valuable in a keeper league than in a one-year league. But I'll bet you there's a lot of people who would rather have Gensel than Claude Giroux at this point. I haven't seen anyone saying that Gensel is going to be like lower than 60. I, every, you know, he's having such an amazing playoffs and everyone's so excited about him. Meanwhile, Claude Giroux had this lackluster season. Brian, I assume you would draft Claude Giroux over a Jake Gensel, forgetting about like position eligibilities or even with position eligibilities, because I guess, that makes Giroud less valuable since he's only center eligible.
1: Yeah, with position eligibilities considered. I mean, sometimes Giroud gets that right wing. In fact, usually he gets that right wing eligibility. Uh, so yeah, that's a tough one. I think I, I would go Giroud. I could see a lot of people going Gensel.
0: Yeah, I just feel like there's a floor issue here where Claude Giroud, even if he's like horrible, and I guess he has been going down each year and each year we probably- 65
1: said 20- point floor though.
0: He had 58 points last year. But, okay, but yeah, but I agree with you. Like, yeah, probably 60, 65-point floor. Gensel, and I don't, you know, this isn't the Jake Gensel show right now, but I feel like a guy like Gensel, sure, unbounded upside. Like, if he plays with Crosby, if he's on the power play, like, he could who knows what he can do he could get 75 points like I wouldn't blow me away if he did that but I feel like there is a lower floor there because you have even if you're the biggest Gensel backer you know it's definitely more likely that he ends up somehow on the third line in Pittsburgh like he has a few bad weeks and the coach shakes things up and he's off the power play and off a good line you know that's not really going to happen with Giroux like I know you said that he had kind of like second line minutes but that's the worst I could imagine coming from Claude Giroux so I feel like you're taking a bit more of a risk drafting a guy like Gensel and that depends on like how you want to play. You could win your pools with some lucky picks, not lucky, but you know, with some risky picks. If they pay off, depends which way you want to go: Ce- higher ceiling or like lower floor. It's two different strategies. Where'd he go?
1: I was just, uh, I was just giving you the thumbs up. I had nothing to add. It was very, very solid rundown. The way you put it, I, I don't see how anyone could listen to that argument and think Jake Gensel is the one they want. Is it inconceivable that Jake Gensel outscores Cloche Room? No, not inconceivable. But yeah, I think Giroud definitely has the higher floor and you can really count on him for, again, 65 points, still has upside for 70
0: as a super talented player who is still an elite producer on the power play. I mean, that's not exactly what I said, right? I didn't say that. (laughs) I wasn't trying to make an argument that for sure you take Giroud over Gensel. I think that Gensel has higher upside than Giroud. So how about that? So like, I think that the possibility for a higher number of points comes from Gensel, and then there's also the idea of his trade value. But I would take Giroud personally. My my strategies, I especially early in my pool, I want to have a really high floor, a guy that I know I'm going to really be able to depend on, because I feel like there's lots of guys like like the Gensels, and I should throw out some other names, right? Like Ricard Raquel, you know, someone who out of nowhere was a really valuable fantasy producer and you're able to grab him pretty late. There's guys like that that are always going to pop up in your draft late or even like later in the year. But a guy like Claude Giroux, you have to get him early in the draft. You're not going to get him at all. But who knows? Like this is definitely, if he goes down again next year, we're going to be having a very different discussion, I think. I feel like this is a make or break year for him. If he gets 60 points this year, I doubt you're going to be calling him a uh, 65, 70 point guy next year. So... I I agree with your call, and I think you're right, and hopefully he'll be able to prove you right, and then we could discuss as he goes into his age 30 year what we'll think of him. But okay, I was talking about power play producers and how Giroux is so high up in that list, even though he's on our list of players who had disappointing seasons. So I was looking down the list of power play producers trying to see who's the next guy in the rankings for power play points. That's someone we were planning on talking about today, and I have to go all the way down to number 50, where I land on Andre Kopitar, which is the next guy I want to bring up right now. Giroux, we're disappointed in his 58 points. How about Kopitar's 52 points in 76 games played with only 12 goals and 150 shots to go along with it? Kopitar, let's admit it, he was barely worth rostering in most fantasy formats. Like maybe in a very deep league, 52 points is decent, but like without many shots on goal and I guess 19 power play points, like I said, good for 50th in the league. It's okay. But like in a 12-team league, you were holding on to Kopitar because you were expecting him to do better, not because you were satisfied with his production. And this is another guy that seemed like a lock for around 70 points pretty much every year of his career. Like after the lockout, we're looking at 70, 64, 74 so I guess he did have that 64-point drop a couple seasons ago. But generally, he's always been 70 or higher. And this year, like I said, 52 can we blame this on LA's lack of depth? We talked all season long about Kopitar's crappy line mates and how, like, what's that guy again that you really liked because he went through a lot of adversity to get back into the NHL? Oh, Devin Sediguchi. Yeah, he was playing with Devin Sediguchi, which is great for Devin Sedigucci coming back to LA and having a nice end probably to his career getting to play with Andre Kopitar. But come on, you can't find someone better for an elite guy like Kopitar to play with. So, you know, I wonder if maybe we have to accept that LA just because it's the kind of three ways to go like either Kopitar still really good but did badly because he had bad line mates but then you have to ask the question is he gonna have better line mates next year or maybe is he just not as good himself like had he had better line mates in the past when he was getting all these points and then even the guys who we thought were pretty decent line mates I feel like we have to tie them in here like Tyler Toffoli is a guy who was playing with Kopitar some of the time and he only had 34 points in 63 games which is a 44 point pace which is definitely not fantasy relevant in most leagues and this is a guy who had 58 points the year before so a big drop from Toffoli probably contributed to Kopitar having such a weak season I guess I'm just curious let's start with Kopitar though like what happened with him 150 shots blech. like 52 points blech. like should people be drafting him next year in like the top 50 top 100 yes
1: Will be my short answer. And of course, I've got a very long answer. But before I get into it, Devin Satoguchi, it was very nice while he played with Kopitar, but it wasn't that much, just 84, 85 minutes on the whole season. So that was just a a thing that happened. We noticed it because a couple points came of it and it made for some good chat on the podcast, but uh, all in all, pretty impactless on the whole. But you're, you're onto something with a lack of depth thing. First, let's talk straight up about Anze Kopitar head on. One of the postseason quotes out of L.A. on Kopitar was the newly minted GM Rob Blake speaking about Kopitar's conditioning that the soon to be 30 year old Kopitar needs to do more to be at his optimal fitness level than he had to do in his early to mid 20s. So that's a little I don't know if it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but like Blake is publicly airing concerns about Kopitar's off-season routine with the seeming intent to light some sort of fire or to make things very very clear to Kopitar because these are things he could just say in person without having to embarrass him to you know the LA and hockey press but here's the thing about that comment that sort of makes me uh, wonder exactly where it's coming from not of course like Rob Blake has probably the biometric data on Anze Kopitar through the season so I'm not someone to question that but I am questioning like the narrative Kopitar built this season doesn't really go hand in hand with fitness issues if you look I Kopitar started this season in two separate tournaments before he played his first regular season game remember he played uh, for Slovenia's Olympic qualification before even the World Cup tournament and then he was an anchor for Team Europe in the World Cup and an anchor in a good way
0: I didn't know that he was playing on Slovenia's Olympic qualification. How did that go? Did they make it?
1: Oh, come on, putting me on the spot. (laughs) I I feel like they did. I feel like it was a good story at the time. I just can't remember if it was this particular round or another round. And I think his dad coaches the team. Uh, He single-handedly carries them through their group. And it's very uh, fun to watch the celebrations and see Slovenia have some degree of hockey success. Ah, uh, but back on track. So no, no,
0: off track okay. again. But how will it work? Because Kopitar, like he's allowed to play in the qualification round, even though NHL players aren't going to be allowed in the Olympics. It seems like just giving them false hope. This was before that decision was uh, made. Yes, if nice. Slovenia has
1: to go into the Olympics without Anse Kopitar, I think they're they're in pretty big trouble. But I think maybe they play a good system. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't have the, the, the most to say about the Slovenian national team. Maybe for another show. So yeah. anyway. If fitness is the primary concern of Kopitar, you think then, you know, he played two tournaments before the season even started, and then maybe you'd think he'd start strong in the NHL season, but then would see his production fade off towards the end of the year, but it's the opposite that seemed to happen. He played very well in both preseason competitions, and then he scored at a 50-point pace for the first three quarters of the season, which is not good for Anze Kopitar, Uh, But then Kopitar finally started doing what we expect from him point-wise. Over the last quarter of the year, he had six goals, 13 assists for 19 points over his last 22 games, including nine power play points, rewarding any pulley who traded for him or held on to him or took whatever chance they had to take on him to have him around for their fantasy playoffs. That nice run of 19 points in 22 games began just a few games before the Kings acquired Jerome Iginla at the deadline. And I do think that Aginla coming helped sustain that run. Uh, it helped Kopitar offensively, not to say it did him any favors at all defensively. In fact, quite the opposite. But look at his most common line mates before Iginla came around to maybe help out with some offense. Uh, Marion Gabrick, Dustin Brown, Trevor Lewis, Dwight King. Kopitar is good. But he's not a miracle worker, especially when he's also doing the defensive heavy lifting and often facing other teams' best forwards. So yeah, I do think the Kings' depth did come into play for much of the season. But pile onto that, a career-low, even strength shooting percentage, which accounts for a loss of about six, seven goals, give or take. And you look at his shot locations over the last few years, they were less concentrated around net front this year than they usually have been. His shots were stretching into the higher slot and around it. Maybe... There's something to consider there, though certainly some of his own troubles were plain bad, quote-unquote, luck-slash-variants. And of course, Kopitar had a career-low, even-strength on-ice shooting percentage, which can largely be attributed, well, to his own struggles and to the low-shooting acumen of his most frequent line mates. One thing to remember for anyone drafting Kopitar or thinking about drafting Kopitar is that his game definitely has changed over the last few years. So if you're looking for Kopitar from two or three years ago, I'm not sure he's there anymore. Uh, You can no longer expect 25, 30 goals on 230 shots. In fact, that was longer than two or three years ago. But assuming that the Kings find a way to offer him some more offensively capable line mates, you could still safely count on 15 to 20 goals and 170 shots with hopefully 45, 50 assists if he has someone to set up. I think he can do that. And the Kings have committed... Already with the coaching and GM change, they said they want to activate their offense more often. Now, they have some cap constraints they have to work through to be able to provide him with some real help up front. But even if they don't, well, actually not even if they don't, if they don't, I am afraid that Kopitar does continue taking a hit in his numbers. Maybe he can will himself to 60 points, playing with the likes of Brown and Gabrick and Lewis again next year. But he can certainly get there and have 70 in his sights with some more capable skaters alongside him.
0: All right, so you were saying, basically, you're not going to go back to a 70-point Kopitar unless you see some improvement in his line mates. You know, we could look at Tyler Toffoli, who, like I said, had a very disappointing season. Of course, he generally plays with Jeff Carter, right? And Kopitar's is playing with guys like Gabrik and Dustin Bram, which would be a good line from maybe five, ten years ago. But I did want to talk about Toffoli because he's another guy that I think people were excited about going into this year, not Kopitar level, but still definitely someone that was drafted in pretty much all leagues. And like I said, he was totally irrelevant. Like Tanner Pearson was definitely someone I would have wanted over Toffoli for most of this year. So what do you think about DeFole? Is he a guy that you would draft? Like is he gonna be a good sneaky late, late round pick? Because that's probably where you're gonna be able to get him, or do you think leave him in the free agency and then see if he does anything before picking him up?
1: He should definitely be somebody worth drafting or at least considering drafting towards the tail end of your draft, depending on how deep your draft goes and maybe even before the tail end of your draft, a lot of people might've been concerned, including you, Elon. I know you were asking me if Toffoli and Kopitar's fortunes might be tied together. And that would be a reason to not expect much from Toffoli. If you're not going to expect much from Kopitar, you know, he and Kopitar, they played roughly 480 even strength minutes together over the last two years. So they're far from being attached to the hip. So it's, it's hard to necessarily make the connection between one producing and the other producing, that's like only somewhere around 30 games total over the last two seasons when they did play together for the majority of them. But it's worth pointing out that when they do play together, they both definitely see a bump in their on-ice goals for rates. Tofoli did get to play most of last year with Jeff Carter and Tanner Pearson, which, you know, they're no slouches either. So that's a pretty good situation. And to be honest, nothing really changed for Tofoli himself between this season and the one before it, except for the one thing we warned you would change going into last season, which was his even strength shooting percentage. In his 30 goal season, his individual shooting percentage at five on five was up above 12%. And then this year, it was down to 6.5%, which sounds low in a vacuum, but it's about uh, not so far off what you would expect when his career number hovers around 9%. In fact, it's lower than you would expect to the extent that 12% was higher than you would expect. So maybe there was a bit of an overcorrection there from 12 all the way down to 6.5%. You know, his on-ice shooting percentage, that didn't look so good either, but some regression was due, perhaps not this much. Uh, Toffoli is still a very good hockey player. He can score 20 goals, no problem, I think he could still manage 25 in a good year and I've got him finishing a little closer to 58 points which he had two years ago than 44 points that he had last year and some extra power play time by the way it certainly wouldn't hurt him he's never really gotten top building being the fourth forward in the power play pecking order in LA which is a team that still likes to play a three forward two defenseman configuration when they have the man advantage and I think it's inevitable that that changes for every team across the league Uh, enough has been written and shared to know that that four forwards one defenseman is almost always the better way to run your power play if the kings do go in that direction i think he should be the beneficiary who can then be counted on for more than just the nine power play points he was on pace for last year
0: well, I mean, two seasons ago, I think he was getting more power play time. Like last year, he got bumped by the guy who you're never into, Tanner Pearson. Like Tanner Pearson was getting top power play time for most of the season. And that's who bumped Tyler Toffoli. But yeah, if they go to four forwards, then all four of them could play along with Drew Doughty. But that would then bump a guy like Jake Muzzin, who's another disappointing player on LA. Yes, you can continue about Jake Muzzin. But just
1: Toffoli uh, had 11 power play points last year. Nine of those power play goals Uh, he had a great power play shooting percentage as well last season, but the difference between 11 and nine is not huge. I would love to see him uh, a little closer to 15, but yes, 11 over nine is a start
0: right okay so let's go to defenses there's a lot of disappointing la kings players don't even get me started on jonathan quick who was disappointing in another way just in that he was injured for all of the season but yeah jake muzzin was a guy who was really cementing himself as a solid fantasy defenseman especially in bangers and mash leagues where you're counting your hits and your blocks he was coming off two straight 41, 40 point campaigns. So, you know, a solid 40 point defenseman who gets power play time and who gets some blocks for you. This is a guy that was being drafted in most leagues. I was definitely targeting him in the couple. I think that in my auction draft, I was unfortunately outbid on him. Like other people liked him more than I did which, uh, you know, I'm glad I didn't get him because he had a very disappointing season, only 28 points in 72 games. And like I said, before that, he had a couple seasons closer to 40 points and he had fewer shots on goal, hits and blocks than he did in 2015, 16. So all across the board, even in the peripheral categories, Jake Muzzin took a hit. Uh, We all remember we were talking about how Alec Martinez took his job on the power play for a lot of the time. I think by the end of the year, he was getting back in there, but it didn't, you know, give him enough. I think he was okay at the end of the season, but obviously the people who drafted him had probably long since dropped him so where do you see a guy like muzzin for next year you know i'm not expecting fireworks i think 40 points is a decent ceiling but it should i thought that was also around his floor i thought he was just a good solid bet to get you 40 points now i don't know i would draft him if he's gonna get me 40 points and those hits and those shots and some power play points i would for sure draft him in my league probably like decently high i like a guy like that on my team Do you think I could rely on him to get back to 40 points? Or now you're kind of concerning me more. If you think that they're going to go to four forwards on the power play, that gives him even less of a chance of getting back up to 40 points because there's no way he's bumping Drew Doughty, right?
1: No, there's no way he's bumping Drew Doughty. And there was enough concern when he conceded his his power play spot to Alec Martinez early on this past year. But by the end of the season, it seemed like he had reclaimed the mantle of the second best power play defenseman, uh, finishing with more cumulative power play time on ice than Martinez had, and also more game-to-game opportunity down the stretch on the power play. But even with that power play time, he wasn't cashing in a ton, scoring about a point per hour less than he had managed in his two previous seasons, and he also wasn't getting in on as many goals as he had in those seasons either. That only amounted to about three or four fewer points than in previous years. But that is the difference between 35 and 40 points on the back end. Of course, Jake Muzzin with his awful season last year, he's still missing like seven or eight even strength points to get back up to 40. They can be partially accounted for by a decreased even strength IPP. The rest, to be honest, I'm not really sure where it went because he still looks pretty good on paper looking ahead to next year to see where he slots in LA is a team whose decor could be impacted by the expansion draft so first off uh, be wary of that when you're trying to project him at this point of the offseason but we also heard that the Kings like I said are looking for more offensive help from their defensemen and we'll see if well first that they follow through on that strategy and then if Muzzin gets to be a piece of that strategy which I do think he's capable of being Yes, maybe that extra power play time never really comes back, which does jeopardize him being a reliable 40 point player. But I'm still into a solid 35, hopefully 40 point campaign from him.
0: Yeah, so we'll see in our patron rankings if a guy like Jake Muzzin or if a Tyler Toffoli even gets ranked by the time we get there. Okay, Brian, how about before we go on to our next player? And I have some more defensemen I want to talk about. This was a big year, by the way, for defensemen disappointing us. The year I, We talked about this on our patron cast last Wednesday, how the year that I decided to draft a whole bunch of defensemen was the year that they pretty much all stunk. We're going to get into a couple more of them in a minute. But first, why don't we take a minute to thank the sponsor, of today's episode of Keeping Carlson, and that is our friend, SeatGeek! Is SeatGeek our
1: friend? Or Uh is it, like, the people who are at SeatGeek our friends? Or are we actually
0: friends with the app itself? Well, SeatGeek is my friend because... The app, I mean, because the app helps me to find tickets to concerts and sporting events in such an easy way. Sometimes buying tickets for these things can be really complicated. But with SeatGeek, it makes it easy. It's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. And SeatGeek helps you to find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for great value. I really like how they rank things by value. So you can not only see by price, but I'm oh, getting a good deal. You know, it's cheaper because the seat sucks or this seat's really expensive, but maybe it's worth it. So I want to know the whole story. And SeatGeek does a great job of filtering by that. So I would say that if you want to go somewhere and you should, it's the summer, go to a show, go to an outdoor show at the Budweiser stage. I think Jack Johnson, not the hockey player, was there in Toronto just recently. I wonder if any of our patron friends went there. I know that patron Dave always changes his team name to Banana Pancakes whenever he has Jack Johnson on his team. Or at least that was my experience with a couple this season. Brian, wait, what am I talking about? Seeking? <laughs> oh, yeah. They also give you even a better deal if you sign up just because you're a listener of Keeping Carlson. So I do you you tell our listeners about that?
1: Wow. If you want a friend who finds you... St- Tickets easily to concerts and events and hockey games and the like. You can download the app or head to the website. Put in the promo code KEEPING when you sign up. And SeatGeek will give you a $20 rebate on your very first purchase.
0: How about that? $20 American dollars. So check it out, SeatGeek. Like Brian said, offer code KEEPING how about we get back to some players that a lot of people are wondering if they should be keeping because they were so bad last year. And I think one of the guys that I really want to get your take on, there's a lot of defensemen I could choose from, but I want to go right to Oliver Ekman Larson on Arizona. We talked about a bit on the Patreon cast. It really got me thinking like, man, this is a hard guy to peg. On one hand, we used to love him. He had 55 points in 75 games two seasons ago. Previously, he had been more of a 45-point guy, which is still pretty good for a defenseman. But we really saw something special coming out of him, especially on a team that doesn't score that much. Then last year, it all fell apart. 39 points in 79 games, which is brutal. He also only had 145 shots, as opposed to the well over 200 that he had in the previous couple of seasons. But the thing with Arizona is that it looks like the future is bright. Like, I feel like on the last Patreon cast, Brian, you were listing a button. There was a question that we had about which rookies and which sophomores do we expect to break out next year? And like so many names came out of Arizona, like Clayton Keller, Dylan Strome. You mentioned D'Angelo, Christian Devorak, as some people have talked about. Plus, they have Max Domi, who we're still waiting for him to make that breakup that you know a lot of people have projected that he'll do. Jacob Chikrin is like looking like a good piece. Like there's a lot of good pieces on Arizona, which makes me think they could be the type of team that could score a lot of goals soon. And Oliver Ekman Larson is the core power play defenseman. Plus there was that news that he had an injury last year, which makes me have some solace or gives me some idea that maybe he could have been better if things were a little different and maybe next year he'll be healthy and the team will be better and they'll have all these good players. It makes me think you got to keep him. You got to draft him high, but at the same time, He had 39 points last year. So maybe I'm just trying to tell a story of why I think he's good. But maybe they're like not a good team. And maybe that 55-point year, which was much higher than he'd ever done before, maybe that was a mirage. And maybe he's just a 40 to 45 point defenseman, and that's just how he is. And he doesn't even take a lot of shots anymore. So I have no idea. Like I could see him landing with 40 points next year. I could see him landing with like 55 points next year. And that's a huge variance for a defenseman. So Brian. Can you help solve this puzzle and try to project where we expect Oliver ekman Larson to land next year when it's all said and done?
1: Well, going into last season, we were warning people, 55 points in 75 games the season before in 2015-16, that was too high. That wasn't really supposed to happen. And we were saying temper your expectations, 45, 50 points would be nice, but he gets you a bucket load of shots from the blue line, which few others can parallel, at least in terms of defensive So that's where good extra chunk of his value is. And then not only does he not come close to those 55 points, which again, we warned about, but he doesn't even come close to those 45 points with just 39 points in 79 games. And to top that off, he has a massive drop in shots on goal and shot attempts at both even strength and on the power play. Like this is a guy who made a name for himself as one of the heaviest volume blue line shooters in the NHL. And that's how he got his points. Then this year, his even strength shots on goal rates, they fell by a third and power play shot on goal rates were literally halved for anyone who doesn't look at these numbers that often is like, is that good? Is that bad? That is not good. That is awful. And all I can think of to explain how bad it is, is like it must be this hand injury that he apparently played through all year long. It's the only explanation I can come up with for such a drastic drop in his shot taking and shot attempting numbers. Now why would Arizona let him do that? Let him play through a hand injury as like a young cornerstone of the franchise in a year that was pretty much over for them before it started? I have no idea but the Coyotes were suddenly taking a lot fewer shots from along the blue line with Ekman Larson on the ice, and I can't imagine any other reason why. It's not like they had anyone new on the roster who needed to suddenly have the puck more often and carry some of that shooting load, which is why I think there is great bounce-back possibility for Ekman Larson. I don't think you're just being optimistic. The only reason to temper your optimism is if you think that hey, this is an actual systemic shift that the Coyotes did intentionally and has nothing to do with Ekman Larson playing through a potential hand injury all of last season. That would just be entirely bizarre, though, and a lot less likely uh, for being the reason for the decline in Oliver Ekman Larson's shots on goal totals and shot attempts totals. The tough part is having Oliver Ekman Larson, even if he does get those numbers to rebound, put more pucks on net again, he's got to rely on so many question marks. To convert rebounds and help create offense. Like you look at the list of players, and you went through them already, but if like Clayton Keller, Dylan Strome, Christian Dvorak, and all the others, if they all click pretty quickly, that is gravy for Ekman Larson. That's a great situation. But if not, then it's just OEL, Max Domi, and well, that's it. Those would be the only two reliably offensive players locked in on that roster at the moment, with Hansel being shipped out late last season to Minnesota and riding Verbata. Going to free agency but Edmund Larson has produced on some poor teams before and with the return of his usual shot volume I still think he's capable of rebounding at least back up to 45 points
0: and do you think he's capable of rebounding back to 200 plus shots were you
1: listening absolutely yes to be absolutely clear I think he will get back above 200 shots assuming again like you, well, I just shared my theory that he was injured and that it wasn't a systemic thing or anything. If it was systemic, then may God have mercy on our souls.
0: Yeah, well, okay. Well, I mean, I think we'll get over it. But I guess unless you're a really diehard Arizona fan. Do those exist, <laughs> by the way? If you're a diehard Arizona Coyotes fan, can you tweet it at, us, at and Carlson because I'd like to meet you. I think Austin Matthews was a Coyotes fan. Oh, there you go. I guess if you're born there. All right, here's... The thing so then i mean the way you're speaking and i feel that this must be right maybe if everyone's thinking of this then it's not a big surprise or a big secret but oliver ekman larson could be a really good guy to target in the keeper league right now his value probably won't be lower like i I doubt he's going to get lower than 39 points next year and so now's your time to go and get him if you really like all of these young players on arizona and we've been spending the last couple of episodes talking up clayton keller like your whole interview with carolyn wilkie started with her just talking about how clayton keller was like one of the best players in the world championship tournament so it's a good time to maybe be an oel owner or to try to get him if you're not and as far as drafting him next year that's always tricky because on one hand you feel like you should be able to get him at a discount because he had a bad season so you're gonna wait and wait but at some point you have to pounce and you have to pick him and you want to know whether but you don't want to like waste a pick when you could have just gotten the same guy in the next round so it's always very tricky with draft strategy and we'll get into that maybe later on in the summer series some draft strategies and how to try to optimize and get some of these value guys. It's crazy that I'm calling Oliver Ekman Larson a value guy, but a 39 point defenseman, I guess it'll depend what people think about him. But yeah, there's a lot going into deciding when to draft him, but I like what you're saying. I feel like he should be a 45 point guy, and if you get all those shots, that makes him very valuable in fantasy. And then all this extra upside if Arizona becomes a high-scoring team. All right, let's do one more defenseman. There's a lot I could talk about. Like Aaron in the chat at the beginning of the show wanted to talk about Tyson Barry. and I feel like, you know, even PK Subban had an off year, Justin Falk, like there's a lot of defensemen. But how about we go to Calgary? I want to ask you, are we done with 50 plus point Mark Giordano. He only had 39 points in 81 games last year after putting up 47 and then 47 the year before that. And those were both in like 64 and 61 games. So well over 50-point paces the previous two seasons. He had 56 points then two seasons ago. So I'm just talking about the last few years. He's been well over 50 points. But last year, like I said, only 39 points, which I guess is actually the same as Oliver Heckman-Narson. Look at that. I could have used that as the segue. Another guy who got 39 points. Obviously, their career trajectories are going in opposite directions just because of their ages. Mark Giordano is 33 years old compared to OEL being 25. But we've seen some defensemen in the past, including Brent Burns, put up good numbers well into their mid-30s. But at the same time with Calgary, they have a new stud D-man, Dougie Hamilton. I wonder if he's the reason why Mark Giordano is starting to dip, just because they have other people that they could depend on now, even though it was actually... T.J. Brody, who was getting the majority of the top power play time, if I recall, which was pretty weird. But anyway, yeah, what do we do with a guy like Mark Giordano, especially in a league that counts blocks? He can be really valuable because he gets so many blocks, and when he was putting up 50 points, 50-plus 50 points, like we're talking closer to a 55, 60-point pace over those last few seasons. He was a real stud, a guy that you wanted to draft really high. Maybe he was a little overrated, but, like, really a good producer. How risky would it be to use an early picker on Giordano next season? Like, do you think that 39-point season last year is the new normal? for him? Or do you think he could get back to being a 50 point guy?
1: I'm going to lean towards the latter. I don't think you'd be wasting a pick if you're at the part of your draft where you're looking at 50 point demon, maybe 45, 50 point demon. I think Giordano is a good bet at that point. And to explain why I'm going to again, invoke coaching to try and explain what happened with Mark Giordano last year. If you rewind to the start of last season in Calgary, you're going to find Glenn Gulitzen just settling in behind the bench for his first year with the Flames, playing with two brand new goalies and trying to implement a new system. You'll also find Johnny Gaudreau putting up just seven points in 13 games over the first month of the season, driving poolies crazy. And you're also going to find Sean Monahan putting up just eight points in 24 games over the first seven weeks of the season. And then, of course, you'll find Mark Giordano struggling, too. He did all right for the first handful of games. He was actually one of the top scorers in the first five or six games. But then he found himself with just a single assist over a 12-game span through late October and mid-November. But soon, after Gulitzin was done mixing and matching defensive pairings and trying to figure out who plays best with who and what to expect from this guy... Giordano ended up playing with Dougie Hamilton and putting up the best shot attempt share numbers of his career. Now, yes, production-wise, Giordano was no better than a 42, 43-point defenseman for any length of time for most of the first three quarters of the year, but he finished the season with six goals and 11 assists for 17 points and 24 games as Calgary racked up that massive win streak that locked themselves into a playoff spot. Now, Even with that whole narrative of everybody struggling in Calgary at the start and Jordano still doing okay, but then really not doing anything, but picking it up at the end. I'm not trying to say we should look straight past this 39 point campaign and say, ah, it's no big deal because we were hoping for 10, 15, even 20 points more from him at the start of the year but the first couple months in the year in Calgary were really kind of a wash and he was able to recover fairly well from that point on scoring at a 44 point pace over the final 61 games of last season. He did have a lower personal shooting percentage and a lower IPP than he's ever had since becoming a marquee scoring defenseman. And even with those drops, he still didn't have that disappointing of a year given some context and forgiving that first quarter. He did see a 60-shot drop from the season before that's numbers, though. Uh, That came partially as a result of his lowest average time on ice in a few years. It's not quite such a ghastly drop when looking at his rate stats. You can just see, oh, he played fewer minutes. He had fewer chances to get pucks on net. And the same thing shows up in his power play numbers, too. He saw 50 fewer minutes with the man advantage this past season than he did the one before, and a commensurate drop in production there. 14 power play points is what he managed. That's still not bad but it's five fewer than the year before and about equal to what he managed in 20 fewer games in the years before that. So that drop in power play time is actually my biggest concern with Giordano going forward. We were totally vexed last year. Remember you, well, you already alluded to it at how the four forward one defenseman set up in Calgary. It had TJ Brody as the defenseman on that unit. And then Dougie Hamilton, Mark Giordano, they shared the other unit. And I don't know if that situation gets any better for Giordano because Ideally, if I'm coaching that team, I'll do the four forwards, one defenseman, but I might have Hamilton up there ahead of Giordano as the 1D man on that unit. Saving grace, though, is that at even strength, if Calgary wants to put their five best players on to score a goal, I think he's one of those five guys. And I think that should be enough to propel him back towards 50 points. I don't know that those missing even strength and power play minutes are going to come back, though. So I'm going to say that the days of 200 or more shots on goal and more than 55 points could very well be over. And you do have to temper your expectations that way.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, even 50 points seems like, you know, that would be a really strong bounce back. Like, it sounds like then are you saying that you think Giordano is going to get more points than Oliver Ekman Larson if you were in like a points only league?
1: Yeah, I think he's got more upside than Ekman Larson. Like I said, Ekman Larson is going to need some help scoring in the desert. We don't know if that's going to come or not. And Ekman Larson is never a guy that you should expect more than 50 points from. I think Giordano has a higher ceiling.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, even being on the second unit in Calgary, I feel like they spread those power plays pretty evenly. Like you've got Gaudreau and Monaghan on one, but you've got Matthew Kachak, who you were you know talking about how much you liked on our patron cast, along with Backlund and League. Like they made a really good line and also a pretty good power play, you know, with Hamilton and Giordano, that could be pretty good. Maybe they swap out uh, Hamilton to go to the top unit and they get TJ Brody down there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, it's tough. But the thing with Giordano is if you're in a league that counts blocks, you know he's going to help you there. And you'd hope that 39 points is his floor. He is like, what about his age? Like being 33, do you expect that that's going to cause him to just get worse and be a worse player regardless of how he's used?
1: Yeah, age is definitely a factor. And I think that showing up more in his time on ice. I wonder if the Flames are going to just tweak the way he's used in order to sort of ameliorate the effects of aging so that he's not playing quite as often and not getting quite as tired or run down with his older age but i i, I don't know I, I don't think it's enough to hold him back yet talk to me again at the end of his contract that expires at age 38
0: well, yeah, that, that could be a problem in five years from now. But okay, while our listeners are off uh, looking up the word ameliorate, great word. Uh, so we're going to stop talking about skaters for a bit. Maybe we'll hit some at the end. Or actually, no, I have one more skater for you. We've been talking about guys who we saw do so well for so many years, then finally had a bad year, maybe with Oliver ekman Larson. You know, he had some good years, then one great year, then now a bad year. How about a guy who people were so excited about, even though it was only a second season in the league? I'm talking about Dylan Larkin over in detroit he went into the season with such high expectations i remember our patrons we had a patron i forget who it was please let us know in the patron only facebook group if you're listening to this saying that he was gonna or maybe you won't because you don't want to be embarrassed but he was saying like for sure 60 points high, upside for 65 like People were so excited about Dylan Larkin. And, you know, why not? He did a really good job in his rookie season. He had 18 points in his first 24 games and then ended with 45 points in 80 games. So he did actually peter off during the second half of the year, which made me think maybe he wasn't going to be as good the following year. And, you know, I'm sure there's lots more reasons to it and you'll get into it. But, yeah, he really took a step down last year with only 32 points in 80 games so he went from 45 which is barely fantasy relevant and you know with like upside and you know he had spurts where he was doing really well like 32 points is nothing that's a guy that we weren't even considering in fantasy for most of the year i had him as a free agent in a lot of my leagues and like wasn't thinking twice about adding him at the same time Larkin, he's 20 years old. Like, I feel like, you, who knows? Like, obviously he came into the league with a strong pedigree and people were talking about him going into his rookie season. Maybe it was just a sophomore slump, if that's a thing. So I'm really curious to know if you would be drafting him next year when he goes into his year three in the NHL can he get back to being a 50-point guy, maybe more? Like, what's his ceiling, I guess? Like, I'm not expecting a crazy jump from Dylan Larkin next year, but I'd love to know if you see him as maybe a 50-point ceiling guy at the end of the day for his career, or is he the kind of guy that we think that after a couple of years, and once he gets the right deployment, and once he, you know, learns how to play in the NHL the proper way for a full season, can you see him as being more like a 60-plus point guy, or are we thinking, like, would that be way too high for a guy like Dylan Larkin? For
1: the few theories you've thrown out, I'm going to focus on two of them. The first is he's only 20 years old. Like that, that's the age that he was this past season. The other point I'll focus on is, is you also just said, does he just need better deployment? Yeah, if you can get better deployment on Detroit, but let me just get into the, the whole thing now. He wowed us when he was 19 years old. It's hard to remember that he was that young. And so it's okay to not keep flying ahead at such an intense pace at such a young age, especially when there was so much else happening around him that wasn't really helping him any. Now, like, can you just give the guy a pass for having a miserable season last year? Eh, probably not. Like, That's a bit too heavy of a sophomore slump to really just write off. So let's look around and see deployment-wise and usage-wise what was happening around him. Well, the first thing that jumps out at you is that his most common linemate last year was Justin Adelkater. And then after that, Dylan Larkin played most often with Riley Sheehan, he who failed to score the entire season until the last game at the Joe Louis Arena. Although, uh, to be fair, right after Riley Sheehan, you've got a whole bunch of guys who played a pretty similar amount of minutes with Larkin, like Nyquist, Nielsen, Tatar. But three players who Larkin saw next to no time with, Henrik Zetterberg, Thomas Vanek, and Anthony Mantha, who were arguably the three most successfully offensive Red Wings this season And of course, by extension, the most fantasy relevant Red Wings this season. And of all the disappointing Red Wings in 2016-17, I think it's Dylan Larkin who had the least of a chance to be successful, playing often with offensive non-factors, never playing for long enough stretches with higher quality linemates for there to have been a click. I have my greater concerns that I've aired before with Detroit as an organization. Like what's gotten better in Detroit since Mike Babcock and Jim Nill left the organization. Not to say that they were demigods or something like Jim Nill has certainly made his share of mistakes in Dallas and Mike Babcock has had some criticism for what he's been doing in Toronto at times. Although like there's no disputing. (laughs) He's done an amazing job there. But the question is, does Jeff Blashill really know how to get the best out of his players? Because for the two years that he's been coach, it's like nothing really positive. Has happened. He had Larkin's rookie campaign that saw him build himself into a Calder candidate for most of the year. But since then, it's been not a whole lot happening in Detroit that anyone can feel that great about. And then getting back to Larkin himself, you know, there also is that sophomore factor. He was able to surprise most opponents in his rookie season because he was super fast. And by the way, he also had Zetterberg as his most common line mate as a rookie. And there was also Pavel Datsuk to shield him from the bulk of other teams, defensive attention, but that speaks again to situational factors. So maybe teams had more of a chance to build a book on him and know how to focus in on him and shut him down, especially when the guy he's playing with is just an applicator, who you don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to. All in all, I still have faith that Dylan Larkin can't be kept at this low of a point total for long. If you want to look for a silver lining from last year's disappointing season, he did have two of his better runs point-wise towards the end of the year. So that you could take that to mean, if you want, to mean that he and the team as a whole were beginning to figure out what he needs to succeed. But I am still pretty concerned with Detroit, more so with them than I am for him. But hey, me being concerned with them still means that his stock drops some, even if it's not necessarily his fault. So we'll watch him go into his third season at 21 years old. I'm going to give him a conservative 50 points. But if things click around him and someone gets a clue and figures out a way to get something good out of that Red Wings team, he could be a key cog of that and pass 55 points.
0: Okay. So you're saying for next year, you think he could bounce back to 50 points, maybe 55. What about longer term? Like as a keeper is now a great time to go for him. Like, do you see him as someone who could be a 60 plus point guy a couple years down the road? In a
1: keep four or keep six league, I don't think he's much of a keeper, but yeah, if you want to keep someone who has potential to be above 60 points in the future, I think he is a good guy to look at.
0: And then one more question. So if you're saying 50 points for Larkin next year, I know you've said a lot over last season that you really like Anthony Mantha. Who would you be drafting first between those two guys? Last year, Mantha was the clear winner and he was playing with Zetterberg, but maybe next year, you know, I I can't see Mantha getting so much more than 50 points. Maybe you have them pretty close together.
1: Well, Mantha also got jerked around the depth chart a whole lot too, being given prime opportunities at one point and then seeing them yanked away. I think he was even scratched when he was one of the most offensively productive forwards for a stretch. It's been really weird how Detroit has handled their players. So I, I think I'm going to go a bit of a cop out with my answer and say whoever gets the best deployment. Larkin is a center. I think he could be the guy, although, you know, they do have Nielsen who plays the position too. I'm going to call it a toss up. I want to think it's Larkin, but I think it's probably. A negligible difference between the two.
0: And then I guess you could throw someone like Nyquist in there. It's an interesting conversation of who you want to take on Detroit, I guess, after you take Henrik Zetterberg. So, speaking of Detroit, how about a guy who was even more disappointing than Dylan Larkin last season? Let's go to a couple of goalies, and we have to go to Peter Mrazek. This was a guy that seemed like such a solid guy to get, like, in a keeper league. You definitely wanted Peter Mrazek. Now, like, Detroit's probably wondering if they even should protect him or Jimmy Howard going into the expansion draft, because Mrazek just had such a bad year. So, let's, let's take a step back let's go back in the past 2015-16 where he had an amazing season 921 save percentage in 54 games played he like clearly stole the number one job from Jimmy Howard it looked like Howard was going to be a career backup for the rest of his career unless he could move somewhere else because Peter Mrazik was the real deal and just like with Dylan Market, like many pools were excited to draft Mrazik expecting him to continue to be the number one goalie in Detroit putting up above average numbers and what they got instead with Mrazik was a brutal 901 save percentage he lost the job to Jimmy Howard. It only took a bunch of Jimmy Howard injuries for Morazic to end up getting another fifty games, and even when he had those games, he didn't do very well with them like i 'm saying like I remember there was a couple of times where it looked like maybe he was starting to get things going, and you know maybe if Jimmy Howard would stay out, it could be good for him to find his game, but he kept on falling apart end of the year, like I said, almost below nine hundred So now we have to decide what to expect for next year. it doesn't seem like you have high hopes for the Red Wings overall. But Mrazek is only 25 and should likely get another shot at being the number one goalie with Howard, having dealt with injuries all of last year. So I feel like there's still a chance for Mrazek to be a number one goalie or maybe share the duties. But if you think Detroit's going to be not a great team, I guess then it comes down to is this like a Corey Schneider situation. We'll get to him, you know, a Corey Schneider from the past situation where a goalie on not a great team, but he can still put up decent numbers or is he like not very good? Like we haven't seen very much from him in his career. He's still, you know, only done three seasons overall is he more of the 921 goalie that we saw two years ago is he more of a 901 goalie that we saw last year which would make him completely useless is he going to be in your tier five again come more goalies or do you see him being higher or lower
1: being the maybe starting goalie for the detroit red wings means that it's pretty hard to rise above tier five in my goalie tiers at the moment but if you look at what went wrong for him last year i think part of it is correctable he fell pretty far. In his shorthanded save percentage, which is prone to a fair amount of variance. He was a top 10 goalie in the category in 2015 16, but he fell way down into the bottom third of goalies. In fact, maybe even worse, he was ranked 23rd out of 29 goalies, right behind Corey Schneider on the penalty kill. Uh, So that's not a great place to be. That's a good way to kill your numbers. Mind you, is even strength numbers did fall as well. Not totally sure why it could still be a defensive thing. Like if you look at what Detroit has on their decor right now, it's not great. They're giving up a lot of high quality chances. At the same time, it shouldn't matter so much about the team playing in front of you. If you're a good goalie, if you're an NHL average goalie, you should be able to still put up an NHL average save percentage, which is what I think Mrazic is capable of doing.
0: Okay. Well, so not super high hopes and tier five means he's going to be falling below a lot of other goalies in your rankings, but someone to keep in mind, some of that people really liked before. So maybe there is some hope that he can go back to being a useful, I don't know, second goalie on your team. Probably not. I don't know. I'd, I'd maybe take him as my third goalie as a guy to roll the dice on and hope he could help. Here's a guy now we've already mentioned him. So let's do the other goalie I really wanted to talk about Corey Schneider. Oof, like just what a bad season for Corey Schneider. Maybe he's the most disappointing guy I have on this whole list. He was likely a top five to maybe eight goalie picked in a lot of leagues, especially ones that count shots against like saves, you know, and then rate stats. Cause we expected Schneider to be a guy that even though New Jersey is not going to get a ton of wins, even though we were optimistic with Taylor Hall coming and we thought even without a lot of wins, he was going to, play a bunch of games, get a lot of saves, have a great save percentage. And it just didn't happen. Like, everything that I just said didn't happen. Like, even though he put up, like, a 920 or higher save percentage in each of his past six seasons, like, everything was pointing to Corey Schneider. Just He was just going to have another great season. He was even at 925 and 924 in his previous two years in New Jersey. Then last year, here's what he ended up with, a 908 save percentage in 60 games played just a disaster like he had been over 920 and then he couldn't even get in the teens just a horrible horrible year we expected him to bounce back all year long and while he seemed to be getting back on track with a 928 save percentage in january and a 925 in february so it looked like okay we're back to normal he ended the year as badly as he started it putting up a sub 900 save percentage in his last handful of games or last like 12 games by the end of the year he was even splitting time with keith kincaid like he wasn't even getting consistent time as the starter though i guess new jersey didn't have anything to play for maybe they even wanted to lose and maybe it worked they did get first overall pick in the upcoming entry draft all this said he is Corey Schneider. He has a big, long career of being very successful behind him. And New Jersey has first overall pick, which we would think means they could potentially be getting better. Pavel Zasha is someone who people think might be able to become a bit of an offensive contributor. Maybe someone who will help New Jersey score some more goals and maybe eventually they'll score more and win more, but they will need to be some decent goaltending. Is this an Oliver Ekman-Larsen situation where his value is at an all-time low and now's the time to potentially pounce on him? Or was last year the start of a decline that we should now expect? expect to continue going into next season for Cory Schneider?
1: I think you can pounce on Corey Schneider. Granted, you know how much I love Corey Schneider and how much I've loved him for as long as we've been doing the show, but I understand anyone's hesitance to pounce on him. The jarring drop down to a 908 this season after having been a 926 goalie for five years before it, that's enough to shake even my own Confident. So here I am, I'm frantically looking everywhere I can to try and restore faith that Corey Schneider can bounce back this year. And this is what I found to sate myself with that. Uh, first off, Adam Larson was gone. So some bigger defensive breakdowns happening for New Jersey, you look at who is there on defense, not Many people are there. It's a pretty weak defensive core, and it showed. They were the second worst defensive team in the league using score-adjusted shot attempt share as the way to define a bad defensive team. And for some reason, also, Corey Schneider was just an 8.43 goalie while on the power play. That's a really weird thing. That's not something we ever look at, power play save percentage. It just means, uh, I don't know, other teams were getting some prime chances and burying them when they were shorthanded. Uh, Of course, more importantly, we saw a drop in Corey Schneider's penalty kill save percentage as well. It was down to 854, which puts him right ahead of Peter Morazic, ranked 22nd out of 29 regular starters in the league. He's been a top 10 goalie in that stat in years past. So this really is a pretty significant drop one we haven't seen from him before in this category. He wasn't any better in even strength metrics either, which I wish I could rely on to say, look, he was only bad in those weirdly variant situations on the penalty kill and on the power play that those were the only reasons his numbers tanked the way they did. But uh, that's not the reason he was bad, like just plain old bad. There's no way around it. So why do I think he still got it? Well, I'm just going to go back to what I said at the front. He was a 926 goalie over the five years prior to this one. I don't think that just disappears. For next season, I think there's a really good chance he's a bargain for wherever you get to draft him. Think of where Bobrovsky was picked in a lot of leagues this year. And maybe that's the kind of value you can get out of Schneider. Now that New Jersey defense is still a mess with still nobody in sight to fill the hole left by Larson's departure. And up front, they don't quite have what Columbus had this year to help support. Bobrovsky But on the whole, like I said, one defenseman gone shouldn't impact save percentage as much as it did for Schneider, if it impacts save percentage at all. So to conclude, I think Corey Schneider is good enough to overcome whatever defensive trouble is in front of him. Like maybe his goals against average goes up, but I think his save percentage should return back to at least the 920 level. I'd love to hope for higher, but maybe that's asking a bit too much after a year as bad as this one was.
0: Okay, well, you know how I love to do comparisons now. One name that jumps out at me, a guy who was, I guess, on a better team, but also was like so inconsistent and bad. Like, who would you take between Henrik Lundqvist and Corey Schneider for next year? Because I know you've been really down on Lundqvist and you really like Corey Schneider. But uh, I think that would be a tough one to choose between.
1: Well, Henrik Lundqvist has been inconsistent. Corey Schneider is in a good year, very consistent, but on a not as good team. Like the Rangers are still a good team and as we said a, a couple episodes back, it looks like maybe Atlinvino has figured out that his best pairing is not Girardi and McDonough. Maybe he can start relying on Shea and Holden, and that could help Lundqvist out a little bit. Um, maybe the X factor in this decision, Elon, is if Ranta ends up getting picked off by Vegas. Because without him being the backup, if the Rangers don't have a serviceable number two, then Hank is going to have to play a lot. And actually, I'm not sure if that would be a good thing or not for him. He did finish the World Championships with, I think, was it an MCL sprain with some sort of injury. So he's got some recovery to do in the off season. Hmm. I think for save percentage, I think Corey Schneider is going to outperform Henrik Lundqvist.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It's going to be hard to decide where to draft a guy like Schneider. If you could get him as your second goalie on your team, like normally that would be pretty good. If you have a really solid guy who you could depend on for wins, then normally Schneider's the kind of guy that will get you your saves and your save percentage. But last just throws things all in flux. I don't know. You say you like him. Though so we'll have to wait a year and then see. And I guess we'll also talk about him a little bit when we do our Schmore Goldiesborg extravaganza episode much later in the summer, probably around August or early September, where you'll give your full goalie tier rankings of which goalies you think are above whom. And we'll see how far down Corey Schneider has fallen. Brian. Those are all of the players we've like prepared for. I wanted to throw maybe just a couple more to a quick sustainable or fleeting round where I can tell you a couple more guys who did really badly. And we can just give a quick. I think he'll continue to be bad, which would be sustainable. Or I think that his bad production will be fleeting. So sort of the reverse, I guess. You know what, you know what I'm saying, right? Is he going to continue to be bad or is he going to bounce back? We had actually a couple of questions right before you joined to start the show here in the chat room. Aaron wanted us to touch on huberdo and barkov which are like the different types of guys to talk about in a conversation such as this because they were both really good when they played there's just injury concerns but that's something to consider you know a bad season if you're injured for a lot of the season that's a bad season in terms of how valuable you were to your fantasy owners uh huberdo started the year injured once he came back he was really good he was almost a point per game barkov was a solid like 65 point pace guy but he got injured again and now it's four straight seasons and he still has missed like over 10 games in each of those seasons he's played i know you said to me that you don't see barkov yet as a band-aid boy like someone like uh chris Letang, who you just have to depend on being injured so what do you think for next year like where would you draft guys like these do you expect them to be injured or do you expect them to just like be really solid guys maybe you could draft later because they'll be off people's radars because their total points weren't that high
1: I don't expect them to be injured. As you already said, I I don't see Barkov as a Band-Aid boy, nor do I see Huberto that way. I see Barkov as a a really high-quality forward, someone who can get to 70 points if he plays 80 games. But of course, I, I do grant you, he hasn't done that in the last two years. He's missed 15 and 20 games, respectively. So for that reason, you could probably knock him down a few spaces on your draft rankings list, especially if your draft is with other people who are going just by point totals and not taking into account the points per game element. Uh, But yeah, I like him for a 70 point point pace. And I like Huberdeau for somewhere between 60, 65.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd give them each uh, like I think Hubert Doe was Like, he had that injury at the beginning of the year, but he was really good. I think he could be a really good sneaky pick. He was really close to a point per game when he was playing, but he only played like 32 games or something. So definitely keep him as a guy you might want to target come your drafts next year. Another question from Aaron was, should we give up on Tyson Berry? My answer to him is like in Colorado. There's like no competition on defense for Tyson Barry's power play time, right? And he actually didn't do so, so badly considering how few goals Colorado scored, like how bad they were. Barry had a really good stretch at the end. I think he ended still with around 40 points. So I feel like I wouldn't give up on him because I think that Colorado, can they be like as bad as they were last year for all of next year? I know we haven't seen any changes yet but I wouldn't give up on him. Like maybe give up on him. He was getting 50 plus points each year for the past few seasons Then like down to like closer to a 40 point guy last year. But I think that he's at least good for 40 points, which is good for a defenseman. And I still see the upside for 45, 50 points. I wouldn't give up on him. I guess it depends when you say give up on him, like who are you going to get instead?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think the question is like, should you give up on Colorado as a whole, let alone Tyson Barry? I mean, Eric Johnson is someone who can take points away from him. Nick Holden? when he was with Colorado was sometimes getting some preferred treatment over Tyson Berry to Tyson Berry. Uh, Patrick Waugh did not seem to really love him. Uh, he got demoted in terms of minutes and role. And then with Patrick Waugh gone last year was just a, a gong show, not because Patrick Waugh was gone, but maybe because he quit at the end of the summer and they weren't ready for it. So Yeah, like I'd still like to see 45-50 from Tyson Berry. Uh, The question is, can Colorado support a defenseman getting that many points? And I have to say, I don't know that I have an answer for that. I'm curious to see what their offseason moves look like. And maybe that will give me some confidence in their front office or it will just continue to keep it at a rock bottom level.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you could ask the same question about Landis and Duchesne, even Nathan McKinnon, who is so great whenever he's not playing for Colorado, right? Whenever he's in one of these tournaments, like the tournament at the beginning of the year or the World Championships just recently, Nathan McKinnon is like a top guy, like I think Carolyn Wilkie said in your interview with her, so... But then even Duchesne and Landeskog were guys that were always drafted next year. You'll probably be able to get them at a discount. And I put discount in quotes because who knows if it actually is a discount if this Colorado team continues to be so bad. So I feel like with these Colorado guys in general, maybe like you say, we have to wait and see what happens in the offseason before we dig too deep. Right now, like they're not looking great, but maybe they could do something to try to improve the team or at least give us some confidence that all of these guys could improve back to the types of fantasy producers they were going into the season over the past few years. Uh do you Brian, you see my list in front of me. Is there anyone else here you want to talk about to close out the show? Well, one name who I was expecting to be
1: part a bigger part of this episode, but maybe everyone's just already moved on, is Jordan Everly, who had an awful season, was destroyed in the press maybe so, to some degree, rightfully so. I mean, destroyed by fans as well. It wasn't just the mainstream media not liking a season, but there is a number that describes how bad his season was. And it was a career low individual shooting percentage, even strength, uh, way lower than it should have been. So, like, even if some of what's being said about him is true about his low intensity or fitness or lack of motivation or just not clicking or not wanting to click, just not fitting in with this Oilers lineup. Even if all of that is true, he still shouldn't have had as bad of a season as he did this year. So I like him for at least a small bounce back next year. I also noticed there was an ever so slight skewing of his shots to his on-wing side. So he's shooting on the right side. Uh, and that's a difference from the past couple of years when he's had success shooting from his off-wing. Uh, maybe that just accounts for a small piece of the puzzle here. I still contend that the individual shooting percentage accounts for the largest piece of the puzzle, but that could be another thing. So maybe they are using him in a way that isn't as amenable to him scoring goals as they were using him before.
0: Yeah, Eberly, man, that he'll be, you'll be able to get him at a discount. Assuming he's even in Edmonton, right? It's possible that they'll trade him for a defenseman in the offseason. I've seen a lot of people saying that they think they should do. I mean, keep in mind also, he had such a brutal playoffs, right? Only two assists and no goals. If you didn't like his regular season shooting percentage, how about a 0% shooting percentage <laughs> in the playoffs in 13 games? So that was not very good. Though it is interesting when you look at his career stats all lined up, as I'm doing right now, he had his most ever shots on goal in a season last year, believe it or not. He had 208 shots, which is his highest ever total, but only 20 goals, which is his lowest in the past four years. So I see where you're coming up with this idea that maybe it was a shooting percentage deal but also we both recall how he was off the top power play and he was you know not playing with great line mates for a lot of the I guess he was playing with Ryan Nugent Hopkins who's another guy who could totally be in this conversation so it's tough to say like with Edmonton I'd really like to see who he'd be playing with it's nice to see that he could still take some shots maybe if some more went in you could go from his 51 points to like I don't know 55 points but it's hard for me to expect him to go back to being like a 60 point guy like don't forget he only had 47 points the year before it wasn't 69 69- games so it's been a couple years now of him not being close to the 60 65 potentially 70 point guy that we thought that Edmonton had back when they first drafted him he had 76 points in his second season and that seems so long ago at this point Another guy who was extremely disappointing last year, kind of in the Everly camp, and maybe even worse, of someone who I thought it's just not even worth bringing him up because, of course, he's not going to be good. But maybe I'm wrong. Uh, question from the chat from Barbecue Bruce asking if Louis Erickson is bound for at least somewhat of a bounce back or is he already done just one year into his six-year contract? I would say that we already talked about him a little bit, right? Because he yeah. was a new coach and we all recall how badly Radim Verbata did when he was on the team with the previous coach and then he had a really nice bounce back last year in Arizona. So maybe the same could happen with Louis Erickson. Yes, I think so. When we talked about the
1: coaching change in Vancouver, we said the biggest beneficiary could be Louis Erickson and by extension, the Sedins. I think he could be a really important piece of getting another quality year out of the Sedins. Mind you, if you stack your offense all on that line, yes, you have Bo Horvat elsewhere and maybe Sven Berchi can chip in too, but uh, maybe they'll try and spread it out more. But if they don't, or Whatever. In any case, I think Lou Erickson is going to be in better shape just by virtue of the coaching change. Last year, he had a really low shooting percentage, just less than six and a half percent. When in the years prior, he had been at 12 percent two years ago and 11 percent the year before that. He also had a really low IPP, like he's used to being uh, in the 80s and then more recently in the 70s. Last year, he was at 48 percent. IPP, which we've said a lot by the way i don't know if we pointed out elon that stands for individual point percentage we already explained it earlier in the show though
0: okay so brian it's your last pick in your draft you need a left wing you're looking at the draft board two former really valuable fantasy guys who i know you've liked are available one is louis erickson another is andrew ladd who do you go with
1: louis erickson i was worried you were gonna say jordan Eberly. In which case, I was going to really have a hard time answering that question. So I'm going to throw that one at you because I don't think that was a hard one. I would take Louis Erickson. Who would you take between Louis Erickson and Jordan Eberly?
0: I think I'd go Eberly.
1: Yeah, I think I'm leaning there too. But like you said, like I saw a headline the other day. Eberle is definitely like in quotes getting traded. I don't know who quoted it because I don't really dabble too much in in the trade speculation articles, but maybe Eberle's location next year is going to be an important piece of deciding if he's worth more than Erickson. It is, and I'm sorry to our Vancouver fan listeners, it's hard to be on a team where you have lower expectations for production than Vancouver. And I'm hoping Travis Green helps turn that around, but at the outset of the season, they're not one of the teams that you want to own a lot of fantasy players from.
0: Well, I know patron and former podcast guest Cameron Robinson is very excited to own Brock Besser. So we'll see if he uh ends up being as viable to him. But I'm sure he's gonna trade him before the season starts, once he talks him up to all of his fellow poolies and he'll get back some like stud for him and end up rolling through his league like he always does. Okay, I guess you guys aren't too interested in Cameron Robinson's fantasy prospects, but it's a big part of the patron group. By the way, Speaking of the patron group, as we're wrapping up the show, maybe you could consider becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson because if you like this content, we would love your support. And I think we give you something pretty fun in return because you could join our patron-only Facebook group for only a dollar a month. You could support the show over the summer, have access to all these conversations. We can have our own chat about which players you think were disappointing, whether you think they'll bounce back. Any question you ask, you know, Brian and I are there to answer as well as all the other patrons. We also do our monthly patron cast. You get access to all the old patron casts. We just did one last Wednesday, which was a lot of fun. Like I said, we went through a whole bunch of prospects and sophomores for next year that we thought could potentially have impacts in fantasy. So you could check that out. Plus we have the keeping Carlson ultimate patron Fantrax league which we are going to be starting to ramp up very soon. I'm very excited about that. We have some fun plans for that league, some changes for next year, which we'll get into on the podcast regular, but the patrons will get first dibs at finding out what's going on. So if you're interested in any of that, you could check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron with that. Why don't we cue the outro music and you could go ahead and read us the credits. All right. This episode of the keeping Carlson fantasy hockey
1: podcast was presented by Dauber hockey and supported by our patrons, It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Hockey Analysis, HockeyViz.com, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Flames Nation, World, and Fantrax.
0: Thanks for everyone for listening. We hope you liked it. Let us know on Twitter at Keeping Carlson what you thought of the start of our summer series, and we will catch you all with another episode in a couple weeks. Until then, keep on keeping Carlson.